Hi, everybody. I'm Oliver Roth, a Broadway producer at O. Henry Productions. You're listening to The O. Henry Report, the podcast by Broadway World, which gives you a one-of-a-kind look inside the business of Broadway. In the report, we pull back the curtain on the biggest stories, issues, and trends in the industry. Today, we're talking about what is probably the biggest story of 2019, at least so far, the actors' equity strike on new developmental contracts. We'll talk to Leonard Jacobs, a professor of arts administration who's now the founder and executive editor of the Clyde Fitch Report, and whose recent article in Lab Strike Against B-Way is Actors' Equity Overreaching, Reports and Comments on the Current Strike. Before we get into the conversation with Leonard, I wanted to give you a brief background on what equity actors are on strike against, namely the developmental contracts used by producers to fine-tune a piece before they head to Broadway. It costs $10 plus million to put a show up on Broadway, and even a regional or off-Broadway tryout run, on average, is at least a million dollars. So, in order to give producers and writers a space in the rehearsal room to develop the play or musical before making that huge financial investment to get the show on the stage, the Broadway League and Actors' Equity Association have outlined and agreed to various standard developmental contracts. Some combination of these developmental steps are used by virtually all projects that make their way to Broadway. We just recently used the lab contract to develop a show that I'm working on, Lumpika. The four most commonly used contracts are the four contracts that Equity has barred its members from participating in. The stage reading guidelines, the stage reading contract, the workshop, and the developmental lab. Now before I go further, I want to note that the restriction Equity has imposed is working on these contracts for members of the Broadway League, the trade organization that represents Broadway producers. So many off-Broadway and regional organizations can still employ Equity actors for these contracts, even during the strike. So in order to more fully understand what's happening in the strike, let's talk briefly about each of these contracts. The stage reading guidelines are what's commonly known as a 29-hour reading. The team has 29 hours of each actor's time over 14 days to get the script ready for presentation. Actors must be allowed to use the scripts during these presentations. Now, the staged reading contract is also known as a 60-hour reading because the team has 60 hours over two weeks to prepare basically the same kind of presentation as the guidelines allow. Except, while the guidelines do not allow for blocking or choreography, this contract, the staged reading contract, does allow for limited choreography of up to three numbers. So the next two contracts, the workshop and the lab, are supposed to be a step above a reading that allows for actors and producers and writers to work on a piece on its feet. The workshop agreement is a minimum of two weeks long. It's a more intensive dive into the script, and there are two important rights that actors have in the workshop contract, which they don't have in the previous two. First, they have the right to appear in the first subsequent full production of the the piece unless they are bought out by the producer. And second, the actors share in a 1% royalty on future productions. Those last two terms are where the developmental lab, or the agreement in question here, differs from the workshop agreement. While the lab pays the actors a higher salary than the workshop agreement, actors do not have the right to appear in the first subsequent production, nor do they share that 1% royalty on future productions. And Equity's main complaints are that first, the amount paid to its members under this contract has not risen since 2007, And second, Equity demands that the lab join the workshop agreement in offering participating actors a share in a 1% royalty on future productions. Now that we know a little bit about what each of these contracts are, we'll bring in Leonard Jacobs to talk about his experience in reporting on the strike. Of course, as a note, Leonard's opinions are his own and don't represent either my own opinions or the opinions of anyone at Broadway World. 
As a producer, I understand and sympathize with both the positions of equity and the league, and I'm excited to talk to Leonard about what those positions are, as well as his personal feelings on the issues at hand. I got you on the show because you wrote a great piece about the uh, current equity strike on Clyde Fitch Report, uh, which you run and write for. And I wanted to start uh, talking about your opinions, your understanding of, 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 of dif- the different sides' opinions of the lab by just talking about – of the lab strike, by just talking about what the strike is and how we got here. So my understanding is that um, Actors' Equity has essentially barred its members from working under a series of agreements and contracts um, loosely labeled uh, under uh, developmental agreements. Um, so there are there's a 29-hour uh, contract and you know various other um, agreements that they use that producers use um, to try out new material, typically musicals, although not always. And the dispute, as I understand it, centers on two main factors. One, the wages that actors receive for participating in these developmental workshops or agreements or contracts um, have not risen since, I believe, 2007. And then two, Actors' Equity is making the argument to the Broadway League, which is the uh, trade organization for commercial Broadway, um, that actors who participate in these developmental contracts agreements, you know, workshops, should be entitled to a uh, a point, essentially one percent of uh, profits um, for any of these shows, musicals, typically. Um, developed under this contract that, you know, go to Broadway, become a hit and make a profit that any actor who participated in any of these um, events, agreements, workshops uh, should be entitled to a piece of this, you know, 1% pool. Um, My story basically teases these two things apart and says, look, um, I take it as a fact that the wages under these contracts agreements have not risen through 2007 And I just can't imagine a universe in which anyone, including the Broadway League, would dispute that those wages need to go up. It's 12 years ago. I mean, 2007, I had hair, Um, (laughs) right? 2019, I'm bald. Hello. Give them, you know, give them a substantial, tangible uh, raise. The second part of the story is uh, is about whether actors, no matter what their level of contribution to the show was, should be entitled to a piece of the profit just by having appeared in a developmental workshop of this new mythical hypothetical hit. Um, and, and that seems like a reach to me, um, for a couple of reasons. One, you and I, and anybody with a brain is going to know that the producers who do bear all the financial risk for trying out a new property, raising the money for it, getting it on Broadway, making it a hit, if they can make it a hit, uh, they're not going to give up a percentage of of their money, probably. It's probably going to come out of the pocket of playwrights and book writers and composers and lyricists um, who run, I would argue, an even, an even you know, sort of higher risk. It's incredibly hard to get a show up. It's incredibly hard, harder uh, to create a hit. Um, And while there are certainly many examples that we can point to where actors have provided a crucial material role 
in uh, uh, in terms of their contribution to the to the piece, in terms of their their uh, their contribution to making a show a hit, those people should be entitled to some sort of piece. But just because an actor walks in a room and they read the script, they take their blocking, they absorb a piece of uh, direction from the director. In my opinion, that does not mean that they are automatically, each and every one of them, each and every developmental show that becomes a hit should be entitled to a piece of the profit. That seems not right to me. Right. And you know, you, you talked about sort of the, the different um, situations. And uh, one thing that I think is clear is that the, this sort of conversation, which is – and it's not the first time that Equity's had the conversation uh, with the league about – uh, a participation, um, net profit participation, but it, uh, I think, uh, the conversation started, uh, with a chorus line, which is certainly one of the former of the types of shows that you had, had talked about where the actors really did, um, get in a room and help write the thing. Oh, completely. And Michael Bennett, uh, basically forced, uh, all of the, you know, original participants in a chorus line to sell their stories for a dollar. And then there was, you know, <laughs> the chorus line became this monster hit. It was the Hamilton of its day. And, um, you know, then they ended up, uh, many of those performers ended up settling for X amount of money and probably not enough, but certainly more than a dollar. Um, yeah, there's no question that a chorus line would not have existed if those actors hadn't told their stories on tape sitting in a circle and being sort of guided and uh, having the material shaped by Michael Bennett. Um, no question about that. Not every show was a chorus line. Right, and, and I think the other interesting thing um, when we talk about the current disagreement over the lab contract is that um, there is an agreement now, the, the workshop contract, uh, that does include – uh, you know, that, that accounts for something like a chorus line situation, um, that does include net profit participation for actors already. And so if the lab contract were to also do that, then it would basically be, mean that, um, for all of the real intensive work contracts, developmental contracts, uh, you know, whether it's a workshop or a lab, that these actors would be getting a, a piece of the pie. Well, that's what equity would like. Right. And so, and so I guess the, the question is, and the, what you sort of explored in, in what you just said in, in the piece is, um, then, then where does there leave room for the development that happens not really in the room? In other words, the script isn't really doctored in the room, but just to, for, to have a, a playwright be able to see the piece on its, on its feet, uh, before it makes it to the stage. And, and so we, if equity is successful, in negotiating a, a participation for the lab contract, that sort of goes away. Uh, right. So, so think about it this way for a minute. We have developed a level of sophistication in terms of how we cultivate material, shape material, evaluate material, put material on its feet. And that we, um, we um, um, want and need and appreciate um, actors in the room so that a writer or composer where a director can see what they've got. Actors' equity is basically saying, you want to use us in any context, even though you're already paying us to do a job, you have to give us a piece of your profit. And if you don't give, if you don't give that to us, you know, we're not going to let our people um, work with you. Now, let's just say, for the sake of argument, that playwrights and composers and lyricists and uh, 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 book writers and directors are like, okay, 
So we'll just go directly. We'll go back to like it's 1930. It's 1940. We'll just go directly into production, right? We'll go directly to Broadway. I mean, none of this is actually going to happen. But let's just say, <laughs> yeah, you know, we're going to turn back time like share, and suddenly it's going to be 1930 and 1940. Uh, all we're going to have are more flop shows. That doesn't exactly help Actors Equity's employment rate um, either. I mean, there doesn't, and I, I write this in the story. There doesn't seem a lot of nuance in Equity's position. I, I don't think anybody would say that when performers deliver a material, uh, you know, crucial um, material, substantive, demonstrably substantive and crucial, you know, value to the the development of a show, that they shouldn't be compensated for that. Of course, they should. What is what is in dispute? And what no one is really talking about is whether that is considered to be the case each and every time for each and every developmental lab. There is a level of arrogance to that that is sort of breathtaking. And the proof in the pudding is actually not about equity. It's about the fact that the Dramatist Guild has said no comment. I mean, mm -hmm. Actors' Equity actually put out a press release where they were touting you know, all of the other unions that are standing with them. And then there was this one line about, oh, the Dramatist Guild had no comment. Well, gee, why is that? Right. Um, so, you know, I, you, you draw some ties in your piece, of, or, or maybe not ties, but allusions to uh, what's happening in Washington right now. And I, I, I think the... The other title, this, this strike's been going on for weeks now. Um, you know, not as long as our shutdown, but, but, but still quite a long time that, that no, uh, Broadway league members are able to basically contract developmental, uh, opportunities with equity actors. Mm -hmm. Um, as you, well as, not to interrupt you, but as well as equity membership candidates, um, the, the union, and I apologize for interrupting you, but no, the union please. states that there are 13,000 equity membership candidates. So, if you're not a member of equity and there are an awful lot of actors who do not want to become members of the union until professional opportunities make it so that they need to be. But if you're even thinking about becoming a member of equity, well, you better not go and engage in one of those contracts. Otherwise, you know, the McCarthyist tactics of the union, they're going to track you down, make you eat a dirt sandwich and never let you in the union. Um, so anyway, as you were saying. Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's, 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 uh, I think what, what I was getting at is, uh, just the, the, the length. Um, do, well, I, I guess I, the other question is, do you have any sense, uh, having, and we'll talk a little bit more about the actual, some of the people you talked to in, in preparing for this piece, but do you have any sense of whether there's any real compromise being formed uh, between, between equity and the, the Broadway League? No, I don't, I don't have any, um, I don't have any uh, gossip. I don't have any inside information. I, I think that, and I've had my differences with the league as well. But I think the league is made up of you know decent, honorable, rational people um, who want to continue creating great work and you know welcoming record audiences to Broadway theaters. So I think when they look at the no rise in wages for these uh, agreements since two thousand seven. I mean, I can't imagine a universe in which they're going to persuasively argue uh, that 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 you know can't be resolved in a matter of an hour, right? Uh, you know, 
I think it's this other issue that is really the sticking point. And when Equity, in one of its 27 press releases, talks about the fact that they've been negotiating this for two years and they've, you know, they've lost their patience and enough is enough, um, uh, maybe the reason that this has gone on for two years is that the producers are really actually aligned, for better or for worse, with the creative teams on this particular issue. And they're just not, they're just not going to budge on it. It's just not this sort of, you know, blunt force trauma, one size fits all attitude that Actors' Equity seems to to want to stick to, which is very sort of Trumpian, um, is um, it's just not going to get them anywhere. I mean, I, I don't know. Does that make the Broadway League Nancy Pelosi? I don't know when this metaphor ends. <laughs> Sorry that I started it. But, you know, come on, come on. Let's get back to the business of making great theater, shall we? And, you know, forget about the wall. And you, you also um, talk a little bit about so, – so this – my understanding is that this all started sort of pre-strike, um, that there was the hashtag not a lab rat campaign that, mm-hmm. that flooded on social media. Um, what are some of the other mechanism, you know, uh, I was going to say negotiation tactics, but maybe it's more, you know, uh, coercive than that. What are the other, uh, mecha- things that equity has been doing to try to, uh, you know, put attention on this and, and push the conversation forward? Well, really three that I'm aware of, and I I cite all three in the story. One is um, equity will send, uh, you know, members to the TKTS line at Duffy Square to, you know, go up to people and talk to them about what's going on and give them a button and ask them, I think it's a, not a lab rat button and ask them as they're, you know, watching the share show or whatever to, that's two share references in one podcast, I'll remind <laughs> you, um, to, you know, wear the button and, you know, so that it seems at least optically like there's some solidarity with the union. And I'm sure that there are people standing on TKTS that'll be like, yes, yes, I stand with workers and this seems reasonable and they'll wear the button. Uh, two, uh, the union is engaging in a, in a um, digital campaign. You know, they're going to be showing ads to people who purchase tickets. Um, and I'm sure the ads are, you know, persuasive in so far as whatever information they're presenting from the union's point of view. And then the third is the one that I mentioned before, which is issuing a warning to the 13,000 equity membership candidates to you know, keep their noses clean and, you know, don't you dare enter into one of these contracts um, or, you know, we will find you and beat you um, metaphorically. Um, I don't know what else they're planning. I don't know how successful the hashtag is. And look, uh, I'm a really big fan of organized labor, actually. Um I don't happen to agree with this one element of what the union wants and, and uh, you know, that's just life. I happen to have a, you know, one person with an opinion. Um, and I don't know that any of these tactics are necessarily, you know, over the top. I also don't know that they're necessarily so galvanizing that it's going to turn the tide. I mean, you know, t- what is it? 10 million, 11, 12 million, 14 million people buy tickets for Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Does the union really think that there's going to be this like 12 million man march on Duffy Square to get the Broadway League to, you know, give in on this particular issue? You know, it's about PR. It's about optics. I understand that they have to do this. I think it's interesting that the Broadway League is not participating or um, uh, sort of, uh, you know, countering. Doing, you yeah. know countering. And I think it's in their interest. And so they're not going to do it. Um, you know, it's it kind of is what it is. It's kind of standard fare. Um I think that they would get a lot more traction from the public, frankly, 
if they focused on the wage issue. The wage issue is so obvious and easy to grasp and compelling. At the beginning of this conversation, when we were talking about, you know, all these different agreements and how they work and, you know, does the, does Joe Q public actively care how the next big hit, you know, got developed and it had four workshops and, you know, three of this and two of that. They don't, they want to go and see a really great show on Broadway and they're willing to pay for it. That's what they want. They want people to be paid uh, a proper appropriate wage. And that's a really easy thing for people to grasp. And I think it would be more in equity's interest to push that issue because the rest of it is just inside baseball. I think that makes total sense. The the last thing I want to talk to you about um, on this issue is you, in in you know, research for writing your piece, had talked to uh, some of the affected parties, some members of AEA, some directors, um, and anonymously because obviously they're uh, you know in times like when there's a strike or in general, especially with actors' equity, there's um, a lot of red tape with regards to making statements, but what was, what were some of the sentiments that you were hearing from people, um, directly involved with, uh, who are, I guess, on strike? So the main theme was fear. Um, there is tremendous fear and fear of intimidation, um, that actors equity will, um, should anybody get out of line, should anybody dare to express their opinion in some public way that the union will uh, take them to task in one or more ways which a rational and objective person might find unseemly? Um, and that's really all I'm going to say about that. Um, it bothered me that people should feel that way about their own union. It bothered me that people should feel that way about their own industry it bothered me that when people have more nuanced and thoughtful points of view, uh, that it's not full of rhetoric, you know, that it's not full of rancor, that it is, you know, trying to find a midpoint between the position of these two opposite, uh, you know, uh, elements, um, that, uh, any union, or any industry should create an atmosphere of such, you know, fear and terror um, that they should feel that they're that they're unable to express it in a public way. Um, uh, so the Clyde Fitch Report produces and publishes opinion and reporting at the at the crossroads of arts and politics, and we've only maybe once or twice in the last you know eight or nine years ever run a story that had anonymous sources, um, particularly in an era of fake news. I think anonymous sources are really problematic. And while we're not the New York Times, you know, the New York Times has its opinion about anonymous sources and BuzzFeed has its opinion about anonymous sources, and that's all fine and well. Um, But we try really hard not to do that. In this particular case, um, some of these opinions appeared, uh, some more fully formed, some more anecdotal in my social media feeds, uh, more than one. And, uh, I reached out to, I don't know, seven or eight people. And, you know, almost all were willing to say something provided that it was off the record, provided that I would keep their uh, confidence. And I kind of wrestled with that. Um, I wasn't going to write the piece uh, without them, because it's really about them, in a way, for me, at the end of the day. Uh, And then I decided that uh, we selected four Um, one of the four actually just wrote, you know, sort of a formal piece, not because I asked for it, but because the individual 
you know, asked if, if they could. Um, and the person sent it to me and I read it and I, you know, I put it, I put it into WordPress and we published it. Um, and I want, you can agree or disagree with me and you can have some feelings about whether my story is less or more objective. And that's perfectly fine. I'm sure that when you read the New York times, you can have your own opinion about each and every reporter writing each and every story. I really want the opinions expressed by the four anonymous individuals, um, at the, at the bottom of the story, it actually comprises 50% of the piece. Mm. Um, I want people to really read that and think, think deeply about, what kind of industry, particularly an industry that is based on creativity and free expression, should be so uh, you know paralyzed and cauterized by fear that the people you know will only write something under cloak of anonymity? People should really think about that because because that's what they're doing. I mean, I know who they are. I'll go to my grave knowing who they are. Hopefully, later than sooner. But <laughs> you never know, depending on how long this podcast lasts, you know, <laughs> but, you know, um, I think that uh, that's the part that I really want people to read and think about. Um, several are equity members, um, as you noted, um, and uh, one's a member of the Dramatist Guild. Uh, we also work in an industry, and I think it's important to say this, if I may, where people are increasingly not pigeonholed in terms of the, the artistic discipline that they, they pursue. You know, you have actors who are writers and actors who are directors and people who are um, multidisciplinary in terms of how they create their work. And these are not, you know, people working downtown. I mean, these are people working on Broadway. People have lots of talents and lots of interests. And it is, um, it is important, I think, for this story uh, that we have a couple of those voices as well, and and we do, and I'm really glad they're there. People are like, yes, you know, I'm an I'm an actor, and I'm a member of Actors Equity, but I also create work, and I'm a member of the Dramatists Guild, or my you know friend is a director, and I can see both sides of this issue. That's what real we really mean by nuance, and that's what equity really needs to be doing. And frankly, so does the league. The league needs to be thoughtful and broad-minded. I think it's fine in a negotiating situation that the velvet glove hides the fist. What I think is not all right is to just see the fist. Totally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, we appreciate you, uh, having really dug in and getting some of those, uh, testimonies, uh, and we'll put, so it's on the Clyde Fitch report. We'll put a link to this article in the show description so that everyone can go through and read not only Leonard's coverage of, of this, but also those, words of 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 input from people involved that we just talked about Leonard, is there anything else that you think should be said that hasn't been about you know what's going on with the strike one of the things that i've heard very consistently from uh, uh actors is that they would really rather the union focus on overall wages mm-hmm. because we're talking about a very small number of people that are ever going to participate in a developmental lab a very small number of these shows are actually going to go on to some level of production, and then a very tiny percentage of these will go to Broadway, and a very small percentage of, of those will um, enter into a profit where it would make any kind of material difference to any performer's life. And I think a lot of actors feel like, you know, hey, equity, your unemployment rate is somewhere between 400% and infinity. Would it be a whole lot better? Sort of snarky. But wouldn't <laughs> it be better? But wouldn't it be better to sort of, you know, focus on everybody's wages? We're talking about 
a piece of a piece of a piece and for that you're willing to try and shut down a fairly important part of the industry why do you want to fall on your sword for that isn't it better to fall on your sword for uh getting wages up for the greatest number of working members as you possibly can um it seems like either a negotiating tactic to get higher wages for a developmental production, or it seems like a philosophical declaration that Mary McColl, the executive director, has decided is somehow in her interest to make, but it's it's just not. It's not impressing the rank and file, really, because it's not benefiting them. They're looking at it and they're saying, well, well, that that sounds delightful, but how does that how does that help me get another job? How does that get right. me more money when I do get a job? How does that um, make it easier for me to get pension and health? Not to not to dwell on this, but one of the four anonymous statements uh, or testimonies that that I have in the story um, basically says, "Look, people do these developmental labs because they need health insurance. They're not invested, if you will, emotionally." In, in whether there's going to be a financial investment in it for them, they just have to hit a minimum number of weeks and they will do anything, anything imaginable just to get their health insurance. Well, if that's true, and I'm not an actor, I'm not a member of equity, so I have to assume that that testimony is a, is a reflection of a, of a fact, of a, of a sentiment that more than one person is going to have. Well, then isn't it in the um, union's interest to look at that? You know, How do they get more of their members how do they, uh, you know, make sure that more of their members are able to get health insurance without having to, you know, make choices between better paying work and, you know, doing something that gets some health insurance? I mean, the union's got a lot of challenges, and I'm, I'm completely sympathetic to the fact that it has a lot of challenges. I just don't understand why this particular one is the biggest challenge that they have right now. It seems, it seems a little exaggerated and out of proportion to me. And I wonder what that's about. So again, we'll post a link to Leonard Jacobs' article that we talked about on the show today in the description of this episode. That way you can read the full story, but also those testimonies from anonymous sources that Leonard interviewed as part of his research. Thank you for listening to The O'Henry Report. If you have any questions from previous podcasts or ideas for the next one, tweet me at Oliver Henry Roth. You can find The O'Henry Report on broadwayworld.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. Basically, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts, we're there. Be sure to follow Broadway World on Facebook and on Twitter at Broadway World for updates. You can find me on Twitter at Oliver Henry Roth, on Facebook at O'Henry Productions, and on the web at www.ohenryproductions.com. For myself and the rest of the O'Henry Report and Broadway World staff, thanks for listening. We'll see you next month.